Welcome to the Stanley Street Social Podcast presented by MAP. If you haven't checked out their range, head to map.cc or if you are in Melbourne, get down to their retail store on Vale Street in North Melbourne. Today's guest is one of the pioneers of Australian cycling. It's Alan Piper. We chat to Alan about growing up in Australia, his first couple of years in Europe as an amateur, going professional, his first tour to France, um, and then retiring, then his 10 years out of the sport, and then coming back into the sport as a 45-year-old as a director sportif. And he's got some pretty cool stories of, of his time as a rider and also as a as a director dealing with riders such as Mark Cavendish and, and Rowan Dennis. So it's a really good podcast and we hope you enjoy it. Today's guest on the podcast is one of the, the pioneers of Australian cycling. It's Alan Piper. Welcome, Alan. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Not a problem. We uh, we linked up this morning, didn't we, at the at the Cadell's People's Ride? Yeah. And it seems like you haven't lost a thing. There was a point there when we all stopped at a at a bit of a bike intersection and then the front guys, yourself included, jumped out of the holes and you were second wheel right in the in the pocket. It's like you haven't lost anything. Well, I don't know if I haven't lost anything because I'm a lot older than I was when I stopped riding, but it was a really fun morning because uh, we left. There were 3,000 people and Canel put the hammer down all the way to Bowen Heads. <laughs> And at that certain point on the bike path, I said to my mate, I want to hit the front once, and Cadell heard me, so he took me to the front, and we just exited the bike path, and then he put the hammer down. It was My heart was coming through my throat. <laughs> heart rate was like over maximal, but it was really a buzz because we, we, we got into an echelon and guys were getting popped yeah. behind. It was, really, it was really the buzz of racing that I haven't sort of felt in a couple of decades, I think. I was one of the guys getting popped. I was at 50th <laughs> wheel in another echelon. Were you chopping turns with him or just sitting in the wheels? Uh, he, he did a turn by himself and actually I, after about a K, I, I, I looped back because second wheel, you, you're still catching so much wind. Yeah. Right? So I, I went back to about 10th position, slotted in, in the echelon. A couple of guys let me in uh, and then Cadell swung off and then we started rotating because we weren't, ro- we weren't going to be able to rotate at his pace. Yeah. Everybody was on the limit, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about your cycling career. What was what was cycling like in Australia in in the seventies when you were a, a teenager growing up? Was there much of a scene, or was it pretty pretty non-existent? Um, well, there was a scene, but it was was pretty grassroots and unaccepted. You know, I I, I started riding in a small town called Yay, about a hundred k's north of, of Melbourne. And uh, there was 1,100 people lived in the town. And a ki- another friend of mine at school started me racing. He was going, he was already racing and going to Melbourne the next week to Hillman Cycles. And we had this old rusted Hillman frame, no, sorry, healing frame in the garage. And Murray said to me, look, you can get me some money. I'm going down next week. I'll bring the parts, put the bike together for you. So, and he brought me also a pair of shoes and a pair of shorts and a jersey. And I've still got the jersey today. Um, and I had a race the next week. Uh, around the Alexandra football field, and, uh, I think under 14s, we had three track races there, so it was was pretty cool, and that w- that was my start. So that first year, I went to some some races all around Benalla, you know, Shepherd and and you know those country carnivals, whether it be road or track, was pretty much fun. But I moved to the city, I think I moved to the city end of 1973 or started in 1974 when I was just going into under 16s, I think. So that was a big change going to the city. I mean, I hadn't really seen anything of the world, let alone, you know, trains in the city. And yeah, it was, the city it, being Melbourne. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, I remember going to my first restaurant ever was a Chinese restaurant in Glen Huntley Road and, you know, it was, it was like a whole new world. Um, there was none of that in the country? No, nothing of that. You know, if you wanted to go out for dinner, it was the pub. Yeah. My parents lived a lot at the pub, so <laughs> I spent a lot of time at pubs, you know. Yeah. Were you doing any other sports at the time or was it all cycling? No, I was doing a lot of other sports and that's the great thing about growing up in Australia. You get uh, you get confrontation with other sports at school. You have to do it. Well, you had to do it in my year anyway. You had to swim whether you liked it or not in interclub, inter-school swimming competitions. You played footy and basketball. and Actually, I sort of excelled at everything but I never really found the niche and I think I didn't have the didn't have the guts really to be a footy player even though I lost my two front teeth playing footy got an elbow in the mouth from the fullback and 
lost my two teeth, kicked the goal, but you know, I mean, <laughs> I'd lost two teeth forever. Wow. But I don't think I had the grin to, to you know go head to head with other guys. And it might sound funny for you know people to understand. You know, you ride Tour de France and crash and at seventy k's an hour, but forty something, you know, is gonna happen yeah. in cycling. You you hope it's not. You know. So how'd you first get uh, over to Europe? How did that all come about? And at the time, it must have been a crazy thought to be a kid from country Victoria to go race your bike in Europe. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because only like two years before, we'd moved to the city. And uh, I went to Geelong Tech, um, which is a pretty rough school, pretty rough school back then. I met Tom Sawyer. Uh, you know, he'd come down from the bush as well, from Horsham, and he, li- he was going to the same school, also a bike rider. And um, nearly gave up, nearly gave up at one point. Yeah, because yeah. my parents were going through, you know, a really rough time. My dad was losing his job and was uh, not a good environment. And I nearly packed it in and, you know, Tom sort of talked me out of it, which is, you know, I think I probably would have stopped if he hadn't have put in a couple of words. But um, in, the, in those two years in Melbourne, I won three Australian championships on the track and um, my parents did finally split up. And it was a bit of a funny story because they split up but my mum went away with me and my sister and she said after a couple of weeks I'm going back and I said well I'm not going with you and she said okay so then I am 16 years old on the street and uh wondering what I'm going to do next and luckily a a family of uh, my girlfriend at the time and, and one of my mates was her brother um the Cunningham family you know let me stay there for six months I stopped school got a job in a factory and saved up the money for the ticket because a friend of mine Brian Gillen um the grub he was a few years older and 21 years old and he was going to europe the next year and i said can i go with you and the grub said yeah fine so and it was sort of an escape because i i couldn't keep living at the cunninghams forever you know and, and i'd done what i could in australia sort of at that age and so you know first week of may i think i was 17 years and 10 days we packed up packed up and caught the flight to london and Three stops on the way to London, yeah. red bus to the city, train to Dover, boat across to Ustend, another train to Ghent, arrived at midnight after two days, you know, <laughs> just off our faces. Um, you know, we had an address to stay uh, with the lady who was, you know, the wife of the owner of a famous bike shop in Ghent called Plume Van Coeur. But her house was full. You know, she had guys living in her attic and her cellar and all the rest of it. Um, told us to come back the next day and we stayed the first night in, in, a, in the youth hostel and I remember the grub had to stay in another room and I stayed with about four or five drunks in the same room and you know, had my had one arm looped through my, through my suitcase another arm looped <laughs> through my bike bag and I was laying there thinking, you know, someone's going to kill me here. But they didn't and uh, next day we went back to Rosa and she'd found us a, a place in an old butcher shop which is actually... The shop front, which the guy just put some plyboard over the window and, and made a sort of a makeshift hallway. We had no door, and he put a bunk in there. And Rosa gave us a blanket and a couple of sheets and a pot, a plate, a bowl, a cup, a knife and fork and spoon, and we were, we were set. And that place was really, really grim, you know, really grim. Um, and I, we stayed there for a couple of months, and then in the meantime, I met Eddie Plankart from the famous cycling family Plankarts. You know, Willie won the green jersey in 63 and Walter won the Ronde of Vlaanderen in 76 and Eddie won the Ronde of Vlaanderen in Paris-Roubaix you know some years later um and Eddie asked me to go and live at his house and I said I'll come but the grub has to come so that first year we lived in there we lived in the cow shed and it was the cow shed but they renovated it into it was a bike a, a bike shed and then they renovated it into our bedroom <laughs> so <laughs> it was a bit rough um that that you know that first start but yeah long time ago and that's how things were then how do you think you would have gone without the grub do you think you would have would have struggled or you would have been all right still i would have struggled yeah yeah because even when i moved in the plank that that first year it was rough and i remember i remember elvis died in 77 about september or something yeah like that and and i remember one day it's like i came through a really thick mist and i came out of this depression sort of you know I missed home so badly, you know. Some days I, I, I put a put a letter in the red red letterbox to my mum and just wish I could jump in that envelope and go home, you know. But there wasn't a choice to go home. Um, but you know, so I, it was it was it was rough those those first months. And you know, the second year I, I went home. Then during the winter, the second year I came back. The grub didn't come back, and moved in with the plank arts again. And 
had to share Eddie's bed then inside the house because there was only two bedrooms, one for his mum, one for Eddie. Yeah. I don't know how the hell they lived there with four kids and, and two parents. But anyway, <laughs> they didn't have running water, didn't have a bathroom, didn't have a TV. They had a, they had a wood-fired oven in the kitchen that you could sit around to keep warm and cook the food on top of and they had a pump that brought out well water out into the kitchen into a basin and that was it you know so it was a step up from the bike from the bike room <laughs> <laughs> but it was still pretty rough and we were working afternoons me and eddie and we'd race three times a week and his walter had just won the the ronde vavlana in the year before so we used to train with walter and that was you know an experience as well so i i had a hard school with the plank arts but they they got me ready for you know the big time pro life. What was the what was the racing like in your in the amateurs in your first couple of years over there? Were you pulling results or were you just getting smashed? No, no. The first year I I, I um the first two years I was junior, and because I lived in Ghent, I raced always around Ghent. I'd ride to the race, ride the race, and ride home. And Eddie Plankart in those first six months I was there, he was still junior, so. He'd been three times national champion in four years, and and you know in those in those three years I think he won like in three years I think he won about 170 races. Wow. You know? So he was just super famous already, and uh, we'd come across each other every week, and uh, and I'd be second. And I think the first year I had one win and 39 seconds to him, <laughs> so it was a lot. Um, and he let me win the one race I won. I remember, you know, throwing the flowers at him, but I didn't want to win like that because yeah. he sort of faked it and pulled his foot out. You <laughs> <laughs> speaking Dutch at this point? Uh, no, a few yeah. words. I learned, I learned a couple of things. The first things I learned was uh, one brown bread <laughs> in brown brilt. <laughs> and the second thing I learned was uh, what time is it, who lat is it. So that was the start, you know, but it was a long process, I'll tell you. After a couple of years, did you come back to Australia for a bit of an extended period of time? Is that... Correct. After my third year, yeah, my third year, I, I came back. Um, I came back, sort of had hepatitis or or a bug called Giardia, and I spent a couple of weeks in Fairfield infectious diseases, and they couldn't work out was what what was going on, and loaded me up with antibiotics for six months. In those days, they were throwing around like jelly beans, so yeah. that sort of annihilated my intestinal tract. And um, I think that came about because, you know. There was a pig farm across from the Plankarts and there was underground seepage and I wasn't used to that water. And But I think also coming back to Australia and, you know, in the, in the off-season and then having to work the whole winter to get money to go back again and then working five hours a day while I was there and racing three times a week and, you know, it, it got had a toll on me after a couple of years, you know. So, you know, after that Fairfield you know, do when I came back, I, I was sort of off the bike for a few months and started racing, but it was really, really bad. And, it, you know, I was in no shape to, to race, you know, until I got taken in by um, an ex-Olympian, Peter Brotherton, who was here for the 56 Olympics and was sort of like an alternative guru in those times. They used to call him the prof. And anyway, the prof took me into his house and, you know, fed me wheatgrass and sprouts and made me fast once a week and he was, he was good for me. Taught me about life, taught me about food, taught me how to be a gentleman, be correct, not lie. I used to do that <laughs> all the time. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he was great, sort of didn't let me race the first few months and then came back on the track and I just got knocked off by Sutto, Gary Sutton that is, in the national championship pursuit. You know, we were, we were neck and neck at the bell and I think he got me by, you know, a tenth of a second yeah. or something like that. But... Uh, so that sort of paved the way to come back on the road. I won everything there was to win the next season here in Australia and then went back to Europe. But I went to France the second time. I went to France, ACBB, sort of where Phil Anderson had gone. Went to a structured environment there, even though I was really pining for Belgium. I mean, as weird as that sounds, I was pining for Belgium and I really hated living in France, you know. Yeah, Well, oh, in Paris, let's put it that way, because it's a big city and it's so unpersonal and you didn't know anybody. And plus at ACBB... There'd been a sort of five, six-year history of guys coming through there. Um, Graham Jones, Paul Schill, and uh, Stephen Roach, Phil Anderson, Robert Miller, Sean Yates. It was a bit of an English-speaking haven, was it? John Herity, yeah. But by then, the Frenchies all knew if they got another foreigner, he was going to turn pro, and they weren't. Yeah. So they were sort of all against me as well. Yeah. So, they, you know, it was it was uh, tough. And I remember calling up Peter, Peter Brother, in about May or April and said, oh, I'm coming home, Pete. I can't cut it. And he said, <laughs> just hang in there. He said, you know, if you come home, you can always come home, he said. But he said, if you come home, it's over. It's not going to happen again. Yeah. So I hung in there and uh, I think I finished 
fourth in Roubaix a week later, a couple of weeks later. And in the end, I won 16 races there. I won the Nations time trial, which is sort of the unofficial world championship that year by, I think, five minutes. I won the Charlie, Charlie Motte. That's unheard of, isn't it? a ripper of a ride. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I just it was one of those days. Fantastic. No, but I did been down there for a couple of weeks training with uh, Paul Vigon, who was sort of the the general manager of the team that had taken a step back. And Paul Vigon, they called him Mickey. Um, and Roach and Anderson, those guys all worked with Mickey. But when I got there, Mickey had taken a step back and another guy had taken over the club in Paris. But Mickey had been the, the director sportif of Onkatil back in the day. So yeah. you know, had a whole rich history of, you know, big time cycling. And he sort of really nurtured me down there and looked after me and his wife fed me and we eat, ate on I ate on their table in the evening. And I felt like sort of, I was I was with the family, and uh, I trained in the morning, and he'd take me out behind the car in the afternoon, and you know we just we had two or three weeks like building like that, you know, and he put all his experience into me riding his time trial, and I just ripped it. Yeah. No socks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wore no Scout socks. Boy. I was really really going. I think he no won the pros. They did two laps, and uh, Osterboss was second, and Osterboss was world pursuit champion that year or the next year. Uh, but I had the second fastest lap behind Hino. Yeah. So it was, it was good. But I put that down to Mickey, actually. As you know, uh, I think Campbell, environment uh, 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 has a lot to do with, with bike riders' mentality. If they feel good and they feel comfortable and they're happy where they are, usually things fall into place. Don't they? Yeah, for sure. Do you have any stories for us before we move on to your, your pro years? Just some hard tales from Belgium or France when you were... Get, I, I can probably give you one really good one that popped into my mind. Uh, I, I, I was an angry young man, like <laughs> seriously <laughs> angry. Yeah, there was a guy in, Bel- in, in Ghent who looked after a lot of foreigners, uh, and uh, he he uh, he had an expression for me in uh, um, in Flemish, and he said a nedig monica, nedig basia. It means uh, uh, an aggressive aggressive boy. Yeah aggressive young boss yeah that's sort of how it goes anyway but i was aggressive and anyway i'd ridden to a race out of ghent uh, my second year i think i'd ridden there from ghent yeah the first year i rode out to a race in the rain i remember getting changed in this in this couch in this farm shed dirt floor and uh i was already soaking wet so i just changed me undershirt my singlet out of my backpack uh and out the out this open door of this barn i i saw this big american car roll up and Five people got out of the front seat and five people got out of the back seat. It was like that cartoon years ago called the Ant Hill Mob. And out of this car gets uh, this this American kid, Greg Greg uh, Greg Lamont. And anyway, I, I was I was pissy at him as well. I thought, oh, you, you upstart. <laughs> so I got into the race and I ripped it. I tell you, <laughs> I ripped it. I remember. Uh, we were, we were we were away together and uh, and I was doing all all the turns and Greg was in my wheel, and I said, uh, if you sprint, I'm going to put you into the barriers. <laughs> so we come around the last corner, and uh, and sort of I started to uh, we were doing a good speed, but I wasn't at full gas and and I felt him coming and I just took him right into the barriers. <laughs> we were only doing about 35 k's an hour, and uh, and anyway, across the line, the guy the guy said, well, what was going on there? <laughs> So that was my, it was a good story. It was a good story. <laughs> just going to let this kid from America in this big pickup yeah, truck. Yeah, yeah. You know, he turned out to be Greg Lamont, the Tour de France. <laughs> <laughs> we were always butting heads, me and Greg, back then anyway. So your first year pros with Peugeot yeah, team? How, exactly. did all, how did all that come about? Well my, that contract? well, my year with Peugeot, with ACBB, they were sort of like a development team for the Peugeot team. Peugeot was one of the biggest teams then. You know, Merckx had been through there and Tom Simpson and, you know, Phil Roach, you know. It was it was really a top team. Um, so I was at ACBB and, and Viergon, Mickey, down in the south of France after that Nations win, said to me, look, which teams would you like to go to? And I said, well, Peugeot first and or TI Rally second and then uh, Renault third. Um, so anyway, he got in touch with... Uh, the guys in, in, in Paris and, and they wanted to take me on board and uh, they agreed to give me 6,000 French francs a month or something like that and then I won the Nations and then they came with a contract that was 5,000 and, and, and Mickey went to bat for me and got me to 6,000 anyway. So I turned pro with Peugeot the next year and we were 14 riders on the squad, nine Frenchies and five English. So there was uh, Phil Anderson, Steve Roach, 
Rob Miller, Sean Yates and myself. So we really had this English enclave. Yeah. It was really great, you know. And the Frenchies were mostly okay. Just Duke Lollasal, he, he couldn't handle it. He was one of those... I won't say chauvinistic, but he was. Yeah, he was <laughs> we like, just didn't write these. Well, other blokes. That we're in French France. Names. We're in France, and you speak French now. And this is France, and this is the best place in the world. That sort of thing. <laughs> I remember that first year there was a, there was another famous rider. He'd left Peugeot to go to Mick Mercier. His name was Michel Laurent. He'd won the Dauphiné and been sort of a top rider. And I remember him coming up next to him in Tour of Med. My first year pro, and he said, "Ah, oh, you foreigners," he said. There used to only be a couple of you. Now there's now there's at least ten of you in the whole peloton. I mean, he, I wonder what he says now. You know, the whole yeah. world's changed. Was it almost fifty-fifty now with like no. Euros and crazy? Else? E- even the UCI, it's English now, and you know, meetings are done in English, and it's, yeah. uh, the world's changed, isn't it? So everything in this team was French. French meetings, or everything, 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 everything was French. But I, I must say. It was uh, being with Peugeot was the best thing for me because it gave gave me time to grow and I I remember the year before when I was amateur I was fourth in Roubaix and Walter Plankard had come to see me there because he wanted me to join the Splendor team with them and actually the money was double what I was going to get at, P- at Peugeot um, but it was only one year so. I, I got advice from the oldest Plankart brother, the green jersey guy mm-hmm. from the Tour de France, Willie, and he said, look, if you can sign with Peugeot for two years, do it, uh, because that gives you the first year time to grow into the sport, and then second year you'll be right, you know, which was which was really good. And Peugeot was sort of very laid back, but probably was part of their demise in the end, you know. But it was good for me, and it was a good growing period because they weren't really focused on the classics and, and time trialling, and that was a niche that I could sort of fall into. Yeah. Where were you living at the time? I was living then, I went back to live in Belgium when I turned pro. Um, was living with the Plankarts for a little while and then I moved to Nino of about 40 k's away towards Brussels with some supporters of Eddie Plankart, so who didn't have any kids and treated me like their son and bought me a car and you know, yeah, okay. had me living in their house and yeah. like the king, you know. <laughs> What's the differences between cycling now, pro cycling now and what it was like in the 80s? Like obviously, there's a lot of differences, but what are the main ones that you can think of? Oh, technology for sure is is the, is the big change. You know, technology on on every level, whether it be bikes, or, you know, clothing, uh, the other equipment that we've got now. You know, trainers, heart rate monitors, power meters, uh, all the rest of that stuff. There was nothing back then. You know, it was just big miles, and you know, is there team buses and stuff like that? No, no yeah. buses. We, I think, you know, we'd go to the race with two cars and everyone had to pile in. You'd change on the street. Even at Tour yeah. de France, we'd change on the street. Yeah. Yeah, you'd finish, you'd finish in Bordeaux at the end of the stage, 10,000 people there and just get, get changed on the street, get in the car and drive to the, fin- drive to the hotel. Now they have a bus where they have post-race food and then they drive to the hotel and, you know, they'd have more food there, but we, you know, we might have been lucky. It was sort of the choice between a yogurt and a piece of bread, you know, it was never both, one or the other, you know, because you couldn't, <laughs> anyway. But I think those are the biggest changes, that, that technology that's changed as well. Was 1984 your, like, your breakout year, I guess? Did, was that the year you won Tour of Sweden? Yeah, that was. And then yeah. third in the prologue in your first In the Tour, yeah. Tour, yeah and you got yeah. pretty close to the yellow the next day, you were third in... First stage, stage sprint, stage yeah, one. I was close. That would have been. What was it like doing doing your first tour? Was it something that you always wanted to do? And was there was there coverage of the Tour de France in Australia through the seventies? Were you growing up kind of I keeping in touch with it? I don't. Uh, no, because I li- when I lived in Ye, you know, my friend Murray used to get mirrored the cyclism, but that was six months later. Even in Melbourne, you know, you could see a couple of the old cycling magazines. We used to get cycling sometimes from 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 Britain that you could see what was going on, but that wasn't really about European racing. And you knew some of the names, Freddie Martins, Eddie Merckx and stuff like that, but you really didn't know a lot about it, you know. Um, so that first year when I turned pro as well, I think there was any coverage in Australia on the Tour de France, definitely not on TV and probably in, in the newspaper, also minimal, I think. So what was it like your first TDF? Was it unreal? It was really good. It was really good. Um, you know, like you said before, I won the Tour of Sweden, the Tour de Loire, so I won prologue. I think I won three or four prologues before the tour. Um, you know, so I was really, I was, I was going well, and that was my forte. You know, so I went to the tour and I led. I was one. I think I was often the first wave, and I was fastest rider all the way to the last two riders, and then Fignon passed me, and then Hino passed me. So <laughs> I, I, I'm honoured to finish, have finished third after those two guys anyway. I think Phil was fourth or fifth in the, in the prologue there. 
And like you said, the next day was bunch sprint and I was third. Um, so I just missed out on a, on a, on a bonus for a, for the yellow jersey. So missed it by by an inch. And the first ten days, I was I was up there nearly every day in top ten in bunch sprints, and I was fast. You know, it was Australian track riding, and and you know I was that prologue rider. I could just make position. I wasn't a good sprinter. You just knew how to box on. I knew how to box on and surf, and you know. Get there, get there, and I was really in, in really good shape, uh, which made a difference. But the last ten days was was hell. Was it? Yeah, because there was there was no real support. You know, there was no. I didn't eat meat in those days either. After being sick, I'd Peter had weaned me off meat and then tried to wean me back on meat, but I just couldn't gut it anymore. So I think that was my, my that was really detrimental. I, I was probably most of my career protein deficient, and you know there wasn't a lot of or any nutritional guidance back there so you just ate what you got most of that was harry corvair and uh overcooked and pasta. overcooked puxas so yeah <laughs> or any yogurt so you know it was was really uh the last week took a lot out of me you know that first that first tour anyway did you come back to australia through your pro career or were you in europe i did i came time? back i came back most years you know because i was still young and i, I sort of missed home six months stint in 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 europe would be uh would be a long time but I, I learned early especially in those first years not to give in to homesickness and that basically meant not thinking about australia you know it's what you got to do not to think be pray not there. i don't know that was my way yeah i just not think about home not think about music not think about the footy not think about my friends just cut it all out cut yeah. it completely out because otherwise the moment i started and even now the moment i start thinking about it it just it it becomes sort of like a sickness, you know. It grabs yeah. a hold of you. You might even know what that's like. But it grabs a hold of you, and then you you can't shake it loose, you know. So it was sort of a denial thing, but it sort of was the only thing that sort of kept me on the on track, you know. Do you think that's the most important thing for Australian riders? Because the ones like Jack Haig comes to mind, Caleb. These are guys that have made mm. Europe their home. Yeah, I think but I it's think so important to do. It is, and and there is a big difference there. Like I said before, technology. Yeah, now, now yeah, you've course. got WhatsApp. You, yeah. can, you can call free to Australia WhatsApp. Yeah. If I called to Australia back then, it was you know it was like $1,000 for 10 minutes. I could never no. afford to call my mum back then. It was a letter and you're waiting on a reply for two or three weeks. So now you've got internet. You can do Skype if you want to. You can, you can do FaceTime. And there's so many possibilities to just stay in touch with people that sort of would keep you going anyway, you know. So I think that makes a huge difference. Plus, plus Europe's become so much more international. When I went over there first, nobody spoke English. Nobody. Um, so now in most countries, the young people all speak English. So you can basically get by without really learning languages. Yeah. You won a stage of the Giro in 1990. Yep. Is that correct? Yeah. Was that the biggest win of your career, you'd say? That was the biggest win of my career, yeah. It Talk was... us through it. How did you, how did you win the stage? Uh I'd had a rough year the year before, 79, oh, sorry, eight, yeah, 89, because um, I had a really good year in 88. I was 10th at the Worlds, just got caught on the line. Otherwise, I would have been on podium and you know, finished up there in a lot of classics, won a couple of good races. And I, I went through that 88, 89 winter in contract negotiations with Peter Post. And he gave me the money I wanted finally, um, but it cost me, you know, mentally. I sort of, I don't know, I got a bit burnt mentally from it and had a rough year, 89, and sort of ended up sort of on the outer of the team. So when I when 90 started, I was still on the outer and um, rode the classics. They wanted to leave me out of a couple and then selected for the Giro. And then nine days into the Giro, one of the directors came into my room. It was actually Walter Plankhart. Um, and he always treated... Eddie, his brother, and me, harder than anybody else. He was really hard for us. No, cut us no slack at all. And he came into my room and he said, so I said, you know, what about contract for next year? Because, you know, it was already May. And by then, you know, people are talking. And he said, well, you can probably stay, but you're going ha to have to go down a lot in money. And I said, well, okay. So I already had an offer from Jose de Cowa, who'd, uh, you know, was a good director and, led uh, Greg, Greg Lamont to Tour de France win a couple of years before. And I called up Jose that night and I said, we discussed it and agreed on a price and it was done. 
And just from that re-signing and, and feeling like someone really wants you, and that happens with a lot of writers, I was liberated. And I'd let out Van Poppel that, that day for the bunch sprint. I'd let him I'd let him like 300 metres to go and I was still in the front. And I was out of the saddle, full gas, thinking, when are these guys coming? I'm going to win here. <laughs> but of course, 200 metres to go, they all passed me. But Van Poppel finished about 18th and I went back to the car. We're getting changed in a park and the Swanier said to me, hey, you're really good. You should try and win a stage. So the next day, after this talk with Walter, came out. There was a circuit race in Klagenfurt in Austria. We'd crossed over the border into Austria for the day. I think it was four laps or something. And instructions were uh, that if I got away in a break, I wasn't allowed to ride. So anyway, ended up, I've just had super legs. You know, sometimes things just fall into place. Leapfrogged a couple of couple of uh, breakaways and over to one French guy, Pascal Poisson, who was riding for the Z team. Actually, the same team as Greg LeMond, I think. And... Um, we are away, so uh, he was pretty fast in the sprint poisson, so Walter came up next to me in the car and he said, yeah, you're not allowed to ride. And anyway, I said, you know, we discussed it a couple of times and it kept coming up, and not allowed to ride, not allowed to ride. I said, Walter, Von Poppel's not good enough, give me a chance. And uh, in the end, he capitulated and he said, okay, you can ride, but he said, you're not allowed to ride in the last kilometre, and that probably won for me. And I think Poisson sort of, underestimated me so you did that you sat on the last guy yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, and i was full of i was full of grunt that day yeah it, ha- it had to happen i had to win <laughs> and i and i sat on and he underestimated me and his and I, even his director came up next to me and i said look i want to pay and and he said no 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 we're not because he was faster than me why why would they let me if if i was faster than him they might they might take some money to let me win <laughs> but it was the other way around so anyway, he underestimated me and he, he uh, you know, I did my last turn, you know, 12, 1300 metres from the line and he just stayed on the front and I romped him in the spring. <laughs> yeah. Was the bunch coming or you guys had it under control? Oh, they were coming. I think we had a minute and a half or something. Okay. So it wasn't happening. Yeah. Anyway, but it was, was, uh, was definitely fantastic. And normally, normally you come across the line and just one year standing there and you give him a hug. I came across the line and grabbed Rupert Guinness. <laughs> <laughs> was he there? Was he? Yeah, yeah. Because Rupert was mate with me and Phil and uh, we, I was just so excited. I grabbed him with a bear hug. And <laughs> people were like, what? <laughs> He's grabbed the journalist. But anyway, it was really cool. So then was it 92? Was that your last year pro? Yeah, or have I 92. Jumped? No, 92, yeah. Did you, did you just feel like it was time? Did you know? That it was time to I did, it. yeah, yeah. And it was it had taken a bit of a toll for a few years because mid eighties to, to you know, eighty six, eighty seven, we got heart rate monitors. Eighty seven I started training with a trainer, the same trainer as Phil Anderson with Panasonic. And I hadn't done my lactate levels and I was using Phil's heart rate. But as it turns out, Phil's heart rate is twenty higher than mine. So I was like I was doing intervals on climbs at maximum heart rate. Okay, you can call it, <laughs> call it anaerobic capacity, but uh, it did make a huge difference. And I ended up in the front in Flanders and just got dropped on the Poggio in Milan San Remo. I was fifth in Gent Wevelgem, and so I had a super classic season. Yeah. But I kept on training like that. Um, and, you know, a couple of years later, Peter Post, my director at Panasonic, said, Alan, if you keep training like that, you won't be racing two years from now. And I wasn't racing two years after that. Yeah, I just burned it. I, I I was just so driven to be at the front, and I found the way that I could be there, and it was by by focusing on on specifics instead of load. Because you know back then load was everything. Did big long rides, and but I focused on the specifics, and that's what made the difference. I got over the top of the mule with the first ten guys, and so it was. I got where I wanted to be in the classics. Uh, sacrificed my time trialing for that, but you know it cost me in the end. In the last couple of years, I really, I really suffered, and it was sort of that those last couple of years of my career. And this, this might sound like cop out, but it isn't. But it was really the big change in the in the, in the doping scene. You know, the EPO was really, really coming into the scene then, and I was doing better intervals, and my results were getting worse. And that wasn't the reason I stopped, but I was, I was sort of mentally dead in my head. You know, I, I. I and I was sort of getting into a spiritual side, you know, I started doing some relaxation exercises and getting into meditation and, and I was questioning what I was doing, you know. Um, the moment you start questioning what you're doing, I think yeah, you, know you know that, <laughs> you're done. Yeah. But it was good in a sense because I, I decided I wanted to stop 
That's good, isn't it? And, to go out on and I terms. could say goodbye, and and whether it was the tour or the Wincanton Classic or the Tour of Britain after that or every race I went to, I could say goodbye to people, and it was it was the last time I was going to ride there. And I think you know from the Giro on, I'd made the decision I was going to stop, and. I made a decision I was going to enjoy every moment of it and I was going to sign every autograph with my full attention. And it was really, really good for me, you know. And uh, my last race was Parry Tours and I remember Stephen Roach waited for me at the finish line and, you know, giving give me a hug because we, you know, spent some time together during yeah. during my career. But it was pretty cool. So I got to have my – got to have my – go out in my own way, you know. What did you do the next day as a retired – Athlete, was it different? Did a lot of things change in your life? Did you know what you were going to do post-cycling? Well, I thought I could stay in cycling because, you know, I'd had a lot of companies interested in me you know, to do marketing for them, teams to work with. You know, it seemed like there was a lot I could do. But in the end, when it came down to it, they were all promises, but nothing came through, you know. Um I was writing already magaz- for magazines and I wrote for four or five magazines around the world, um, different articles on cycling and I did some, some public speaking, you know, in, in the US and Britain and Australia and did a public speaking tour in Australia for clubs, you know, Tasmania, Victoria, New South Wales. But it wasn't really a job. And then I got some TV work with Channel 4, with SBS, Tour de France, doing interviews and stuff like that. But Phil and Paul sort of had it wrapped up, and there yeah. wasn't a lot of opportunity apart from that. And it wasn't going to be—it wasn't going to be a lifelong career of just writing articles and doing a bit of fill-ins. And my ex-wife said back then, because she had a fast food business in Belgium, she said, "She said, look, come into the business with me. We'll earn a lot of money, and you can—you know—you'll have a good life, and you can do what you want." So, well, it seemed like the only opportunity. You know, there weren't international teams back then. Okay, there was Seven Eleven. And I'd missed my opportunity there because end of 91, Jim Ockerwiss had asked me to join 7-Eleven as first director. And it was between Henny Kerper and myself um, and one other guy. And anyway, Henny got the job because I'd said, no, Ocho, I want to ride one more year. And he said, well, maybe we can discuss at the end of next year. But I missed it. Maybe maybe that was good because it, it wasn't such a good era in the 90s, you know. Mm-hmm. And I missed all of that, you know. But went into the fast food business, something that I didn't really want to do, being vegetarian, selling hamburgers <laughs> and hot dogs and hearing uh, a few times Hero to Zero. But in, in, in a way, it was humbling for me, you know. Uh, I came out of my career thinking I was pretty good and uh, went off the rails, you know, for that first six months or so, you know, just doing everything I'd never done before. What bought, were you doing? Just bought a Harley and dragged all over France and Belgium <laughs> and going out drinking all night and just really just sort of just messing up you know i mean for 32 years <laughs> on the regime yeah it was just everything i'd never done in my life i grew my hair halfway down the back and <laughs> i remember riding around the m25 in london one that first summer and i'd been to some see some people in oxford and i had no shirt on had my helmet off on the back of my bike just going <laughs> was, rogue. was laying down on top of the tank like doing 140 <laughs> i was just sort of off the rails Anyway, but that was I needed that, so um, so I had about ten years of doing that until uh, I split up with my first wife and then came back to Australia thinking I could settle here. Uh, but I had a small son; he was four years old then, and it really crushed me being away from him. So back to Europe to uh, to work at the Tour de France as a guide and ended up staying and solicited for jobs and finally got a job with Lotto as director sportif, which was you know when I think back to it pretty amazing I w- i'd been out of the sport 10 years i was 45 years old and uh, they gave me a job so I'm eternally grateful to mark sergeant it was something you always wanted to do go into into DSing. i wanted to be in the sport when i came out um it was very closed shop nationally if it was a french team they only wanted frenchies if it was dutch they only wanted dutch if it was belgian they only wanted belgian and the only team was 7-eleven turn slash motorola um and I'd, you know, solicited for a couple of jobs as PR, which I would have liked to do, but it, it just never eventuated. So it was disappointing at the time. So many promises and and sort of nowhere to nowhere to go. But getting the opportunity to come back in a bike team was really, really amazing. And I was telling someone yesterday that ten years out did me really good. I got to see what it was like to to earn a dollar, and uh, 
coming back into the cycling world, some something I loved. I was just so full of motivation just to be around the riders and just do the just do the max. Unreal to be back into oh, the scene. God. And I knew nothing. I you know the cycling world had changed so much. I'd missed that whole the whole nineties era. Yeah. We won't go into that, but I'd missed all of that. And I remember being at Dauphiné two thousand five, my first year, and and we were starting in Aix le Bain or something like that, and there wasn't many people there. And I was just sitting on the bottom of my car and. Lance came riding from the back down through the cars and he said, morning, Alan. <laughs> remember calling up, calling up my girlfriend then and saying, uh, who became my second wife and saying, you'll never guess who just said hello to me this morning. <laughs> because like Lance was, was sort of, he was, uh, he was extraterrestrial, wasn't yeah. he? He wasn't, he wasn't a cyclist. He was sort of like a Hollywood star. Yeah, he was. And he said, good morning to me. So anyway, it was pretty, that was pretty amazing coming back into cycling. So what's the role of it? of a DS because a lot of people outside of cycling might think it's like a, like a coach in a way, but you're not really a coach, are you? What, what's the role of a, of a director sportive? Well, the, the, I've got a three page job description that I wrote up last year for my directors at BMC about what the job description is for a, for a, for a director sportive. But generally speaking, the job of a director sportive is to take the team on the road and be responsible for the staff and the riders, daily planning, race tactics, strategy, um, psychologist, father, at the races. There's a lot of other roles apart from, aside from that, you know, race planning, programming, goal setting, all the rest of it. But that generally is the role of, of a director sportif to be the man who's in control of everything and, and has his finger on the button for everything that happens while you're at a race and while you're travelling. And you never switch off your brain until the last person's gone home and that's, you're responsible for that. So it's, uh, it's a pretty um, diverse skill set. You need to wear a lot of different hats a lot of different times and you learn a lot about yourself because you're the last person you think of when you go to bed at night. You mm -hmm. haven't thought about yourself the whole day because you're thinking about other people constantly, especially your riders. And what you know, think about what they need to do, what their jobs are for the day after and three days down the track and... So uh, you, you sort of put yourself on the side, but it's definitely gratifying when things come off. <clears throat> what makes a good DS? Do you think it's someone that has to have ridden at a high level? Do you think that's pretty key? Because if you look across the board, that, that seems to be seems to be the case. Yes, I think high level, but but I don't think you need to be a champion. And there's not many champions who are DSs because champions seem to be self-centered, mm -hmm. and they need to be self-centered to be champions. So that doesn't make for a good director sportive because you need to be a sort of servant to the team and serving the riders and serving the staff, putting everybody else before yourself, which champions don't usually do. They want to be, they want to be first. But I think I can give a good analogy actually of, 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 of a director sportif. Something was told to me, uh, f quoted to me from a book that Rod Ealingworth from Sky wrote and he wrote it about Dave Brailsford. And he said Dave's biggest skill was he was like the face of a clock with an hour hand, a minute hand and a second hand. And the second hand works in the moment. That can be today, tomorrow and the next day. The minute hand is working next week and next month. And the hour hand is working next month and next year and two years down the track. And there's not many people that can hold all of those things together at the same time and function. A lot of guys can work in the minute and that can be, you know, working the next three days, the next five days or whatever. Some guys can do both the minute and, and, and the seconds, you know, working now and, and working a little bit down the track, but not many can do the three. And I think a really good director can do that and is also emotionally, um, uh, I won't say enlightened, but, you know, emotionally savvy that he can work with people and, and has, has a bit of control over himself. I think those are, that's a really strong skill set as a, as a director sportive. Can you talk us through the years at HTC High Road? Because that's when I kind of started to to properly watch cycling. And I remember in the Tour de France, those lead-outs that were happening, and I've never seen anything like that since. I don't think there has been a lead-out quite like it. What was what was the team culture like at HTC, and how did you get it all working just like a clock, especially those, those lead-outs in the Tour, maybe 2009, yeah, 10? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well... I think the big the big change was the T-Mobile meltdown of 2006 at the tour. You know, some guys went positive and 2007 I came on board. I'd had two years at Lotto, came on board with T-Mobile 
that first year was T-Mobile and it was sort of the end of the big era. At the end of 2007, you know, we, we had to get rid of a lot of riders but the biggest thing was Bob Stapleton had taken the team over. Bob Stapleton had a, had a, had a communications company in the, in the US that had been bought by T-Mobile for $50 billion and Bob had taken over the team and was didn't know much about cycling but he was a big businessman and he came in bringing business strategy into cycling and that might have been the first time mm. that happened and bob bob's big thing is because he was a really confident guy and what he'd done in business was build a team around him that were absolutely the best at everything they did so he 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 looked for people he used rolf Aldog, who was with timo bob but rolf's a really really good thinker and a really sharp sharp thinker and they'd become friends so rolf was on board as, as head director and he they they picked a, a group of people who were far ahead of where cycling was then um and things we were doing back then in 2008 2009 concerning performance with wind tunnel testing and track bikes and equipment and skin suits and lead outs and strategy and 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 roster structure and goal setting and you know that was, you know, some teams are not even doing that now. And I think that was the big thing. And after the whole doping thing, what we didn't want to do going into 2008, we didn't want to buy a big leader because we wanted to grow a GC leader of our own that we could trust. So in the meantime, what we're going to do, we were going to have a few sprinters where we could go to each race with an objective and then build a team around those sprinters while we tried to look for a GC rider. And then when we found one, build a team around him. So it was really a, a, a definite strategy in building a team for the future. And we already had young guys like Greipel and Cav was, had just come more on board as Neo Pro. Uh, you know, we had Gerald, Gerald Chulek and we had a few fast guys and we had a few time trialers, Mick Rogers, George Hincapie. There was a few guys on board there. So we had a really good structured team. But I think... The big change was Bob, that he that he led from the top, led with a, with, a, with an open card and never felt any stress in the five years there, but he always kept us on track. And I'll give you an example of that. Renshaw had been thrown out of the tour for headbutting. Um, I think it was 2008 or nine or something like that, maybe even 10. And we got back to the hotel and we were all down in the dumps about it. And, and Bob said, okay, look, it's happened. What are we doing tomorrow? And that was it. Move on. Get on with it, guys. Yeah. Get out of this this blues mindset. Right. We're going to win tomorrow, and I think that was the big thing. You know, we we came away with the, with eighty four wins that you know we won six stages in the Vuelta, six stages in the Tour, five stages in the Giro. We won seven of the eight stages or eight of the nine stages in the Tour of Switzerland. It was epic year, yeah. you know? and, and it got so so much so that we we didn't even celebrate anymore. We hardly even gave a high five anymore because it was, it was just so much. It was just winning so much, and it was like. And I, I remember saying to some of management of the team, "This is never going to happen again." And it hasn't. Quickstep got close to that record last year with seventy three wins, but the high raid days were, were really heady. And I must say, Quickstep sort of has the same structural organisation as high road back then, because they've got a few sprinters, a few good time trials, classic riders who can who can, you know, make crossovers to being lead out guys. They don't really have a GC guy, and if they do, he sort of basically rides for himself yeah. or by himself. So it was, it's a little bit more the same type of structure. But they got close, but the high road days were really, really special and, and very much avant-garde. And what Bob had said as well, I hope if this team finishes that all of you directors go out and lead other teams to success, you know. So it was like, it was really, yeah, special. What was it like working with the young M. Cavendish at HTC. Wow, well, pretty wild times. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> pretty wild what, times. What was he like? Was he hard to work with? He, yes and no. He was, yeah. He was very fiery, very fiery. In that first year, you know, we got on pretty good. I firmed over him quite a bit. And um, then, uh, you know, we had a few meltdowns, you know. I'd say to him what I thought and he wouldn't speak to me three, for three months. And, you know, I don't know. We just... Yeah, we just bashed heads a few times, but I must say, working with Mark was probably the, the you know, and the success he had then was probably the most fulfilling that I've had in my whole career. I remember the, the day, we must have been down in Narbonne, we had crosswind and we came out, we turned right into the crosswind and 
the other teams had been lulled into a false sense of security because they thought we were just going to set up the sprint. We came out of the corner. Mick, Mick Rogers <laughs> opened it up in the crosswind, and we had we had nine guys in the in yeah. the front out of a group of 18 and they ripped it all the way to the finish and Cav won by five lengths. It was just incredible. And my, my, old, my old director sportif at Panasonic, Peter Post, he sent me a message. I hadn't heard from him for years. He sent me a message with just a few words. He said, never seen before. And that was, that was it. It, 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 it. He'd never seen it before. Nine guys from the same team in the front in an 18 mile uh, breakaway, yeah, and and we won as well. It's it? famous footage, isn't it? Whenever yeah, they yeah. show like oh how crosswinds work or whatever, yeah. they flick back to that two thousand nine. Yeah. But probably the most, the, probably the most uh, intense moment of the of that whole high road days was was the last year two thousand eleven. I think Cav won Champs Elysees and they went one two him and Renshaw and and we knew the team was over. And it was it was like how can this happen? How can this something so good happen that we mm. can't get sponsorship and it folded? That's cycling, though, isn't it? Yeah, but it sadly it shouldn't be it like should, that. Oh, it shouldn't be. No, that's not, not, not what I'm saying that, at all. Not with that rate of success, yeah. they should be. You know, sponsors jumping, but they weren't. And I think that had been sort of the turn down in the the whole aftermath of the nineties, nineties, early two thousands era. You know, but anyway, it was a good period. Then you went to Garmin, and yep. then we were talking this morning that you're going back to the Giro this year. The last time you were at the Giro, you won it with Ryder Heesedale yeah. as, a, as a DS. That must have been an unreal three weeks because was on the last time throw. Was that yeah correct? Yeah, yeah. exactly. He took the lead. He had the, he had the lead during the during the Giro. Took it for a day, halfway through, and then and then finally got it back on the last day. But it was epic. And actually, that year at Garmin was challenging. It was the first time I moved into the sort of sportive manager's role. Um. And led the team and the directors and at the tour at the Giro there it was we'd gone there and we'd said right at the start we're not doing anything we're not sprinting we're not going in breakaways we don't want to be seen we're riding for rider and we're riding to win and we'd said it already in in, in Denmark and it was like I don't even know what we're thinking but we we just set out with a mission and things fell into place and we had we had six fat asses and two climbers you know, we had Pete Stettner and and, uh, and Christian van der Velde and the, and the rest were just fat asses, like I said. You know, uh, Alex Rasmussen and, you know, you know. He was a big boy, wasn't and, he? And uh, Navadalskas and Jack Bauer <laughs> and, you know, sort of unknown yeah. quantities, you know. And uh, we just did a great job, you know. We just we just did a great job. And on the day to the, to the Stelvio, um, Thomas de Ghent was away. They had seven minutes and other teams weren't chasing. We'd gone over the Mortirolo and... There was only Christian and Ryder left, and 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 Thomas again was going to win the Giro. And and Katusha was sort of sitting on the fence where they should ride with, with Rodriguez. And I said to the guys in the radio, "Look, we got to wait till Pete comes back." Pete came back, and then he punctured. So then they had, had to get him back again. Then Pete rode all the way to the base of Stelvio, and then Christian rode to sort of halfway Stelvio. And then Ryder, I said, "You got to ride, Ryder. You just got to ride. That's it." Rodriguez was in the wheel. He was sucking it all the way, and and. And I remember saying to him sort of three quarters of the way up because it got windy up there. And I said, right, you've got to use the, use the wind. Put him, on, put him on the side of the road. Yeah. Use the wind. And Rodriguez scarped away from him in the last couple of Ks and got a couple of seconds. But he, he won the Giro there. It was epic. Pulled back to Ghent and sort of within, within touching distance. And, uh, and then the, came down to the final day. I remember, you know, we, we won the Giro. Or he won the Giro. Um, I slept with his bike in my room that night. <laughs> Unbelievable. And then the next three weeks between there and the tour, every time I went out riding, I was just like in a state of euphoria. It's just unreal just being part of that victory. In a state of euphoria, winning a grand tour. And, you know, the second place was was Rodriguez and his director was Valerio Piva, who'd been with me for five years at High Road. And I can remember it must have been gut-wrenching for him losing on the final day as an Italian. You know, and I sent him a message, tried to call him, no answer. <laughs> but anyway, you know, it was, a, it was an amazing experience. It was an amazing experience at a Garmin. It was a great team as well because those Americans were so laid back. We had so much fun with that team, you know, just laughing and everyone played their music on the bus. and Just a just good vibe. A really super vibe. Yeah. I, and, and I've never had that in any other team as well. Really? It was, it was actually a super vibe at Garmin, yeah. What was your time like at BMC? Because you were sport, was a sporting manager. First, I was technical. First, I was performance manager. Yeah, I came in there as performance manager, not as director. 
um, and they wanted me to set up a performance team. So they had nothing then. They had a couple of trainers, but they didn't really have a structure. So the first couple of years was, was getting a group of trainers together, getting a platform set up, accountability for the riders, everybody uploading, you know, weekly reports, um, you know, taking riders, taking riders, track testing, organising all that, going to the track test, wind tunnel testing. We tested, you know, all over the world, four or five different tunnels. We were working on time trialling in those days because we really didn't have anybody. And um, so testing tyres and equipment and, you know, going to races, setting up time trial day. Um, but after a couple of years, you know, it was set up and I could delegate to people after that. Um, but after the second year or after a year and a half in, I, I became a sporting manager, still in the performance role, but sporting manager, sort of looking over the director of sport chiefs and the race program. And it was a pretty intense time running that whole show, um, but really fulfilling because, you know, we when we won our first world championship in 2014, just when Rowan came on board, it was it was a turnaround for us, you know. Um, someone said to me the other day, how many, how many time trials did you win with BMC? And I said, team time trials. And I said, no, you put it the wrong way. How many team time trials did you lose with BMC? Yeah. And I said... From that moment, from what I recall, from that moment we won the first world championship in, in 2014, we lost four. Two world championships, the quick step. Um, we lost the team time trial last year in Dauphiné, which was basically the B team there, lost to Sky, and then one other. There was one in Romandie when I was there. Exactly. <laughs> okay. So anyway. 2015. That was the four, but actually we excelled in that. And you know, speaking to Kevin Tabotta a few months ago on the phone, we were talking about you know Sky and, and, and the way they set up the the mountains with their team and and I sort of saw in the tour this year when we won the time trial that with with the money and the riders and getting more and more experience that you could become that center of excellence like Sky is in in, in climbing mm. and that's what we became in in uh, in time trialing and I said to Kev you know we worked on trying to move towards perfection and he said no no you guys perfected it yeah so I think that was pretty good hearing that from Kevin anyway um, and I think we did actually. We we had it dialed, you know. Do you think that comes down to preparation, equipment, or, or having the the riders? It, to it, do it, a bit it's of all it? it's all of that. It's all of that. But the turning point was Rowan Dennis, and I remember being yeah. in Ponferrada. Marco there was was there as trainer, Marco Pinotti, and uh, he'd brought down his mentor uh, Dario Bracado, and Dario had a suggestion that we we try for a negative split, and I said Marco. This group doesn't have the confidence for that. We haven't won any term time trials. I said, if you go out banking on a negative split, we're never going to recover. They haven't, they haven't got the mental aptitude for that right now. And one thing that Rolf Aldag had said to me in passing, that Tony made the big difference in, in quick step because he was the motor. And he started and he rode and everyone rode to his pace. And we did the same thing with Rowan. And I remember we went out of Ponferrada. It was slightly downhill, 1% or 2% downhill for the first 10Ks. We were doing between 70 and 80 the whole way. We got to the first split. We, we, it wasn't the official one, but like 10, 15Ks in. And we were already 10 seconds up on quick step. We got to the halfway point and we're like 20 seconds up. They had a bit of a dip halfway. And I must say we probably had a little bit of an atmospheric advantage because there was a storm coming in. And we were a bit ahead of quick step. Uh, but, you know, they blasted. And I remember T Rowan being on the front on the last climb. You, you won the world championship there. Mm. And uh, on that same climb, I remember seeing you suffering on the climb and you came back from a deficit and yeah. won. Well, the same thing with us. We were Rowan on the front and he's, he's pretty upright in his body. You know, he was on his, on his, on his horns Just looking back, gear. seeing that the guys were there and he had them in the wheel. And it was like you know, unbelievable, unbelievable we won that. And I think that was the real turning point because the group got confidence that won there. And then it sort of spread out to the rest of the team. Because that's it. You had different guys in the team. There was always that core guys yeah, like yeah. Stefan, Quinziato, Rowan. But yeah. guys come in and out and exactly. still got the job done. And there was all that we 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 learned that there was always the need for the motor. You had to have a motor to set the pace, and every run rode according to his capacity. And and even the non climbers became team time trialers because it's a routine, you know. Mm. And you get the confidence. You do 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 it at training camp. You do it the days before the team time trial, and it, be, it becomes a belief system that everyone says, "Okay, we're going out. We're going to do this," you know. 
So I think that was the whole mojo that I'm talking about. Like with Sky, they know they can do it in the climbs because they've got the riders, they have the system. That's what we had at BMC with Team Time Trial. What was it about Rowan that you liked so much? Because he was with you at Garmin and then he made a a half-season half transfer, which yeah, is unheard yeah, of. Like, yeah. Were you a big part of bringing him in? Yes, yes, yes. He was a big part of bringing him in at Garmin while I was there. And, and you know, he came to Garmin and, and I resigned and left. So I sort of left him high and dry there for a year and a half. And then it came around that uh, the parties agreed on a mutual transfer and it was good for everybody and was was great to have him on board. What I liked about him, just such a pro, you know, just so fully, fully committed to everything he did and, and demanding excellence from everybody around him. So much so, much so that was everyone was frightened of him. <laughs> Because he just demanded absolute excellence. Because he put in 100%. He expected everybody around him to be 100%. 100%. I remember we were at the Worlds in, in, in Richmond. And uh, Dillier didn't want to ride with booties. <laughs> we had Peter Vellets there as reserve. Peter was reserve there. He'd been in the world team the year before when we won. And we're in Richmond and Peter was there as reserve. And, and, Dillier, and Dillier said he didn't want to ride with booties. And Rowan said... If you're not riding with booties tomorrow, you're not riding. And I, I won't say the other words he said. But he said then then Vellitz can ride. He was. He, he had so what, Dillier it. put the booties on? In put the, the booties on. And we won again. Was uh, was he was exceptional. He was exceptional. And that wasn't that wasn't to say that we didn't have our run-ins because we we had some serious oh, yeah. battles. Him and I him imagine. and I. Yeah, yeah. Just well, you know, top bike riders are they're. they're they're a breed of their own, you know, and I had the same thing with Cav, I had the same with Rowan, but, you know, that, that's that's what working at the top is, you know. Um, you know, I've always sort of admired Alex Ferguson from Manchester United mm. and how he stayed on the top for so long, dealing with all those egos and, and, and you know, management at the same time and getting results and keeping a position because, you know, it must have been, must have been amazing. Have you read his book? Sorry. Yes, yeah, have I, you, I read have, it. Have you were speaking this morning about you went to like a, a high performance kind of we got time, time, yeah, like a high performance um, cultural kind of expo. Have you ever had anything to do with Sir Alex? Have you listened to him speak? No, like I've that? never never listened to Sir Alex. No, I yeah, would have liked to have seen him. And, and the book the book that he wrote was really fantastic and gave me a really good insight to how he functioned and you know. I, I don't think it depicted everything that was there, but I think he uh, he must have been an exceptional guy the way he did work, you know. So now, new team again. Yes. UAE. What's it like and what's your role? Um, my role is director sportif. Um, I've got three people ahead of me. Mauro, who's uh, Mauro Giannetti, who's general manager. Machin, who is the manager. Neil Stevens is the head of the sports directors and I'm on the Neil technical director. Yeah. Looking over the equipment, doing the race program for the riders and goal setting and on the road at races. So I'm doing the classics this year from the, from the first one in Newsblatt all the way to Roubaix. Then I go to the Giro with Fabio Aru as first director and then I'm at the tour with Neil in the first car. So an exciting role. A step, a step back, but a step different, you know, a step away from all the stress and day-to-day problem-solving mm. and fire-putting-outing and all the rest, but a, a chance to get back with the riders and do what I really like doing, you know. And and I, and I, I did a pros and cons list a few months ago, or a couple of months ago, the teams I was talking to, and UAE came out mostly nearly all cons and only a couple of sorry nearly all pros and only a couple of cons and what i liked about it was a whole clean sheet you know yeah a new team with all new people no preconceived ideas no writers i'd worked with before no staff i'd worked with before italian speaking you know wanting you know with a budget with the writers but weren't getting the results an exponential growth possibility you know and i think that was the, the thing that really attracted to me to them you know and um, Neil Stevens sort of put me forwards for the job and, uh, you know, grateful to him. And Steve-O and I have butted heads in the past, but <laughs> I think we're a little bit older and wiser and, and we're yeah. working pretty good together at the moment. And you said there's a bit of an old-school kind of culture there a little bit. You were talking about Aru. You guys stopped at a coffee shop and he came up and he said, Alan, thanks for letting us stop for a coffee. And you're like, what do you mean? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's crazy, what? isn't it? That, you yeah. know, still in 20, was it 2018 last year that 
yeah. that was still happening, no stopping on trade. Yeah. Well, they're very old school because it's always been fully Italian until now. So they really haven't had that um, in flood of, of, of international ideas and cultures that, that make things better. That's what we had at High Road. We had multicultural, probably the first time in cycling apart from CCC, maybe they put the blueprint down first. Uh, sorry, CSC so, yeah. with Bjarne Ries. Yep. They put the blueprint down first and High Road carried it on. But it was so multicultural and so many different ideas coming in and m- maybe that's what, what, uh, what's kept them like they are. But again, everything we can do in the team is, is going to be growth, you know? Yeah. And I think we're already seeing that, you know. Neil and I both came into the team and Neil said to me, you know, we probably need to see how the team is in the first year and maybe we can change a few things for the second year. But there was there was so much to work on uh, and we've already, you know, achieved a huge amount already just in the first couple of months. Last question before we let you go. If there's any kids in Australia specifically, what's what's your advice to them if they want to they want to become a professional rider in Europe what do they have to do I think uh, I don't know that that professional rider in the in Europe is the end goal I mean you can have that in the back of your mind but you need to focus on now the second hand you know and being as good as you can now and training like you meant to and eating like you meant to and sleeping like you meant to um, all of those basic things you learn when you're a kid, when you're 14 year old or 16 year old or 18 year old, you know, and taking a step at a time. That's the important thing. Uh, going through the steps of, you know, juniors, under 23s, that's a natural progression. No one goes from kindergarten to university yep. or primary school to university. You have to go through all of that. And I think trying to be as good as you can right now, you know, but probably one other thing is having fun doing it, you know. It's got to be fun yeah. because if it's not fun, you're not going to hold it, you know. You're not going to be able to keep perpetuating, you know, all the all the sacrifices you need to make and, and, and the things, you know, time you need to take to do it. So um, have fun. Alan, thanks so much for your time. It's been a, a super chat. So all the best with 2019. Thanks for having me, my first podcast.